dodges the carnage, Jorge drops the hammer, and Fabio speeds up the speed up. Welcome to episode 65 of Bike Vibe. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 65 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101, and we have a bumper weekend of motorcycle racing to talk to you all about. We are looking back uh, on the seventh round of the MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3 seasons, which took place at the Circuit de Catalunya. As we saw, history made in Moto2, a first-time winner and the second youngest in history, uh, in the case of Fabio Quartararo. Um, an absolute shit show in Moto3, won by an Bastianini, um, and the exact opposite in MotoGP as a very tame Grand Prix was won once again by the resurgent Jorge Lorenzo. Um, we'll talk about all the action from all three of those races um, over the next hour and a half or so. We'll also look back on the uh, next round of the British Superbike Championship. They returned after a month away at Snedston last weekend. Not a lot has changed if your name is Leon Haslam as he took another double to extend his winning streak to five uh, in this British Superbike season. We will also look ahead to this weekend um, as the World Superbike Championship heads stateside for its annual round at Laguna Seca. A lot to cram in um, to this week's edition of Bike Live, entitled Jorge Thorenzo. And introducing the man who came up with that name, it is, once again, Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Bring me Thanos! Um, I had to get the Infinity War joke in there just out of the way at some point. But um, yes, hello everybody. Well, pleasure to be back. Um, apologies for not being on a motorsport on a one episode 146. People did ask me about that. Um, given my total watch time of Le Mans was about 14 minutes, I don't think it was all that fitting um, that, uh, I, that I'd, be, I'd be there as a host. I'd be, I'd be very quiet um, for the most part during that one. But um, pleasure to be back and pleasure to get into what was a pretty heaped weekend of bike racing, if you ask me. Yeah, it was. It was a good, it was a good uh, weekend, all things considered. Probably the best races were the races that we weren't expecting to be all that good. But we'll get into that right. um, very, very soon. But yeah, shout out to Jorge Lorenzo for doing this impression of... Which was that house robot, that new house robot that I introduced late in Robot Wars with the hammer? Uh, that, that, that Mr. Was, Psycho. Mr. Psycho. That's what Jorge Lorenzo reminded me of. Um, last weekend, <laughs> uh, Catalonia, Mr. Psycho probably wouldn't have worked as an intro because that would have drawn or drawn a lot of questions um, from from our listeners. Chris um, Cook would love that one, but that would be about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the Ducati lawyers would have probably been onto us for that. What do you mean, Mr. Psycho? Um, anyway, <laughs> um, let's uh, first of all tell you about the places you can find us. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.com. You can find a new piece from Dre earlier this week um, surrounding the Ducati issue, which we're going to be discussing um, over the course of this show. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn us of early access to both our weekly podcasts, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Back here is at the $5 level, you earn yourself early access to our weekly podcasts. Back is at the $10 level, and you earn access to our Discord server and the ability to listen to our podcasts live as they are recorded. This week, I saw episode 146 of Motorsport 101 uh, as we looked back on the 24 hours of Le Mans as uh, Dre Fernando Alonso took in his own words one of the most impressive Le Mans 24 hour victories any of us have ever seen. Right. Did, did, did you hear? I'm also marrying Jennifer Lawrence. Um, oh, so, yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, yes, um, dodging the uh, any chance Fernando can get to, uh, shall we say, um, pull his own chain when it comes to the equality of his Le Mans victories. Um, yes, our, our 20, uh, 2018 Le Mans review is going to be up by the time this goes up, episode 146. Two, uh, you know, curiously named, two down, one to go. Um, I hope no one gets mad at the fact we named it after Fernando. Um, I know how, I know how some of the British guys get mad about that in the WEC. But, uh, yeah, we'll be talking all about Le Mans. Um, I wasn't there for this one, uh, but uh, Patrick Hofstetter was there taking my place instead alongside RJ and King, although partly in spirit <laughs> because the audio was a bit of a nightmare to chain together. So apologies for that one if, if um, for any technical hiccups that was in that episode. It's not – it wasn't It wasn't the usual ultra-smooth, buttery audio quality you it, <laughs> <laughs> it really did trust me um so um again my sincere apologies for that one i'll make 147 a, an all patreon access episode to, to, to counteract it. it's only fair um on that one but um yeah you heard it here first on bike life um but uh yeah all of the 2018 le mans talk a shock disqualification post race in the lmp2 category as well as uh jeff had his le mans win taken off him too um i hope he doesn't lose a formula e title next <laughs> next weekend in new york as well but uh, all of that pat rj and king in episode 146 which will be out right now and uh, and episode 147 um will be out uh, next weekend looking back on what's taking place this weekend as indycar returns as does formula one formula one returning um to paul rickard shout out to anyone who's um able to send us a picture next week of listening to one spot 101 whilst trying to clear a snooker table uh given that it's episode 147 um, but uh, hey. introducing episode 65 of Bike Live, and let's uh, head to Catalonia. And, and for the first time this season, and the first time in, well, ages, uh, we are starting in Moto2, um, because history was made last weekend. The second youngest winner in the history of this class, dating back to its inception in 2010. Um, it, it says quite a lot, Dre, when the only person that's been able to do anything uh, or do this at a younger race than you is Mark Marquez. Um, you, right. know, you know you've done something quite special. Um, but I have to say, last week when we previewed the Catalonia weekend, um, we didn't really talk an awful lot about the Moto2 race weekend, but we could have spoken about that race weekend and previewed the Moto2 Grand Prix for a good half an hour before mentioning Fabio Quartararo's name. But what a ride! That was an astonishing performance. It wasn't even just the race itself. It was all weekend where it it, it, it felt like Quattararo had been in the class for like 100 races already and he was an established veteran of his pace. I mean, it was a bit of a surprise when he was fast in practice. It was a big surprise when he ends up sticking it on pole position on the Saturday and then he just doubled down on that Um in the race victory. I mean, sure, yeah, Miguel Oliveira took the early lead, which is also quite shocking in its own right, which we'll get to in a minute. But when Quattararo took took the lead of the race in the early going, he was gone. There was there, No one had an answer for him. It was a stunning bit of riding all weekend long. I don't know what happened in that speed-up camp where Fabio has suddenly been able to put it all together and he's found something that's clicked on that speed-up. I mean, I know they had a, a, a new um, carbon fiber swing arm on that bike, but... You would never, um, not in a million years, would you ever guess um, that uh, you know that would be you know worth maybe a second a lap to get him into contention. All of a sudden, uh, I know speed ups not not had the best of seasons overall, which makes it all the more shocking. So uh, 
yeah, it's been nothing short of an incredible weekend for Fabio Quattararo, and a nice reminder that you know just how much talent this 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 kid was touted to have coming into Grand Prix Motors like a racing at the World Championship level. Mm, he did, and he's he's been gradually improving as this year's gone on. He didn't score any of the first two races, but that's now his fifth consecutive points finish. Um, two mm. of those in uh, Spain and his home race at, at the uh, at the Bugatti Circuit at Le Mans were top tens. Um, so mm. Quartararo has been quietly going about his business and in many ways riding for a team like Speed Up when you're quite an inexperienced rider. In many ways, the pressure is off you uh, when you're riding for that team. But um, he did get a top six last year back at Misano in those filthy conditions we had there. He was seventh a couple of times last year as well, including his very, very first Moto2 race in Qatar. Um, at the start of last year. Um, he was the next best rookie after Banyaya and Binder, um, who, of course, were on much better bikes and much stronger teams last year. Um, uh-huh. So in many ways, his performances in 2017 went under the radar. Um, but yeah, I was going to make that very point about Quadraro in that it just goes to show how, you know, to use the old sporting cliche, form is temporary, class is permanent. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we've seen some rides in the past, the likes of Oliveira, the likes of... Um, you could argue Danny Kent in, in Moto3 in that they oh. wouldn't necessarily um, catch you um, by by a maze, catch you in amazement straight away, even if they do mm-hmm. come into the class with the greatest reputations. But you have to sort of think with these guys sometimes, don't you, Dre, that some, some, we're still talking about kids when they come into this paddock. Quartararo won the Junior oh. World Championship at the age of 14 and 15. Um, 15, and, yeah. And obviously earned his, and earned his way into the Grand Prix World Championship at the age of 15 as a result of that. And not all 15-year-olds are able to handle the pressure, the, the microscope that's on them in the Grand Prix paddock. You know, not all, they don't all handle it particularly well, especially when you're being touted as the next Mar- Marquez, which Fabio Quartararo was back in sort of 2014-15 um, when he came into Moto3. Um, you know, he had those uh, pole, pole positions early in his debut season. He got on the podium a couple of times. I remember us speaking very the very first two seasons of Bike Life coming into 2015, and we were thinking, is Quartararo going to win this championship as a rookie in Moto3? Because he was so sensational as a, as a rookie in testing. Right. Um, and it never really happened for him. But, but as I say, Dre, Fabio Quartararo is still only 19 years of age. And yeah. we, we sometimes forget, don't we, that these guys are operating in world championships under the, the highest of pressures. It's such a high-pressure mm-hmm. environment. Sometimes it takes them a while to mature. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a guy who was born in '99, which is just one of those things that make you all feel old for a second. But he he won the junior world title at 15. They bent the rules to get him into the world championship without having to miss out on a couple of races because I don't think I think his birthday is in is in early May, so he was going to miss the first two rounds because back then Moto Three had a minimum age limit of 16. Um, so they 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 had bent the rules to get him in basically um so and i remember moto gp themselves were on their own website was hailing him as the french mark marquez right from the start um he had an almost unhealthy level of hype going into um you know going into the opening round of the of the of the world championship when he was in there in the in the main event series um and it never really worked out for him. He had a couple of you know, a couple of flashes of brilliance, but he, again, he never really stood out in Moto Three. 
um, in that sense. Um, again, you can make the case, given he's such a big guy, that he probably just wasn't an actual fit for the class. Or someone like a Bo Ben Schneider or Jonas Volga, who were always kind of held back because of how small the Moto3 bikes are. So he, he ended up going up to Moto2 last season at the age of, what, 18. And even then, that's still exceedingly young for a bike rider. And yeah, he's, he's basically just gotten on with it. He's never complained. He's just he's just plodded along, gotten on with his business and just tried to find improvements on on the bike. And as you say, I didn't realize he had all those top 10s underneath him as well. But again, Kotsuaro is walking proof that, you know what, not every talent or every super talent we, we seem to tout or hype up, they're not going to be, you know, front runners straight away. I mean... We've been spoiled in recent years to have talents like Alex Rins to a degree, like Maverick Vinales, who was able to get on a Moto2 bike and be top tier almost immediately. While on the other side of the coin, like the last two major Moto2 champions we had were Johan Zarco and Tito Rabat, who won titles in their fourth seasons in the class. Matteo Pasini right now is riding as well as he in 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 gp racing as well and he's 32 years old and he's been doing this for for well over a decade and a half now um some guys do get better with age and even the top even the some of the greatest like max biaggi he won a world superbike title at 41 mm. so there's 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 no like there's no like not every super talent is born equal and some guys are just better than others i mean in the sense of um you know some, some, you can make the case someone like Sandro Cortese was an early bloomer. He was brilliant in Moto3, but he never really showed the same talent in Moto2. And he looks like he's back to somewhere his best in World Supersport now. So different paths and different, you know, riding styles and natures are going to have an effect on on how riders develop. And I hope this is the first of many more performances like this for Fabio because the, the kid is clearly... I mean, the way he dominated the junior world title is unlike anything I've ever seen. And that class is not scrubs. Those are the most talented, you know, young teenagers in bike racing that are taking part in that junior championship. Yeah, and if Fabio I just give you the names of some of the riders that he beat in 2014, it was his second junior world championship. He beat Jorge Navarro. Gambi Rodrigo, yeah. Marcos Ramirez, Nicolo Bulliga, Andrea Migno, Maria Herrera, Remy Gardner, Albert Arenas, Bradley Ray, Stefano Manzi. That's just your top twelve. Um, yeah, and, and they're all. Like, they're, and look at look at where all those riders are. There, are, some of them are Grand Prix winners. Some of them are um, British Superbike um, uh, race winners in the form of Bradley Ray. Um, you know, they've mm-hmm. all gone on to have very very strong careers in their own rights. And Quasarro was beating them at the age of fourteen. Um, yeah. which, which you which you don't do if you aren't phenomenally talented. And not only do riders sometimes mature at different ages, but I think with Quartararo, when we're talking about going from Moto3 to Moto2, you have to remember how tall they are. And, and Quartararo yeah, is Quartararo's a metre 77, so he's, a, he's an inch short of six foot. Um, and he's still only 19, so he's still growing as a man. Um, mm-hmm. so, so in many ways, he almost was forced to go out of Moto3 up to Moto2. Um, because you know he was no longer, despite being phenomenally talented and perhaps as talented as anyone else within that class, he was no longer at a size where he fit, he fit and suited the bike and had to move up. And yeah. I, I draw parallels with riders like Lorenzo Baldassari, who was never really—I mean, he was a dominant champion in Red Bull rookies, but never really amounted to much in Moto Three um, because mm-hmm. he was, frankly, by the time he got there, he was already too tall for the bikes. Um, and we're yeah. going to talk about a rider in, in Nicola Bulliger later on. Um, in Moto3, who's having a, a terrible season and, and is struggling both on and off track. But 
he's six foot as well. Um, yeah. And Bulliger's only, he's only 18 years old. Um, so um, he's another rider that this time next year, we or towards the end of the season, we might all just be saying, look, it's not working out for him, but he's clearly talented. Get him into Moto2. Um, because if, if, you believe, right. if you believe a rider's talented, even if they're not necessarily lighting up Moto3, if you do, truly believe that rider's talented, stick with them and back them and give them the opportunity um, in Moto2, which is what last year the Pons team did with the quarter hour, and this team speed this, this season speed up have done that. And, and, uh-huh. what, and what a way to repay them, um, to take speed up's first win since San Lowe's um, at the Circuit of the Americas back in 2015. Um, so it's been a long time between drinks um, for that team, um, and it, it's difficult to know really how to how to quantify, it, isn't it, Dre? Because a lot of people instantly pointed fingers Danny Kent's way um, mm-hmm. on Sunday because he finished down in twenty first position, um, thirty seconds behind his race winning teammate. Um, mm-hmm. But it has to be said that if Quartararo had not won, which is I, I admit is a very big if. Um, we'd have been looking at Danny Kent finishing down in 21st and thinking, well, that's just about where speed up are. Yeah, it's it's it's, one of the, it's like the age-old F1 question that I've seen in lopsided teams. I'll use the example of like the 2012 season, which was probably the, the best F1 season um, of recent times, where Fernando Alonso was basically hailed as the underdog um, in, in that Ferrari team against Sebastian Vettel, even though his car won four Grand Prix that season. And I think Alonso was on the podium something like 14 or 15 times that year. It was a weird one in that sense, because you have, you have to often ask yourself, what's the proper baseline for that car? Is it Fernando? Is Fernando just that good? Or is you know is is Felipe Massa the more relevant baseline for that car? Is like is is Alonso overperforming the car, or is Felipe Massa underperforming? It's one of those age-old debates you can have in your head. There's there's a case you can make for both. I think it's similar in this case here, where it's like speed up have not been competitive really this season, especially not when it comes to race wins um, and whatnot. Um, like again, like I've. It's it's easy to you know to throw shade at Danny Kent because the guy has always talked a very big game. Yeah, and, so, I mean, uh, so I mentioned it was Speed Up's first win since uh, the start of 2015. Yeah. It's their first podium since 2016. Yeah, like the, this is not a very good chassis at the moment in the context of MotoGP. KTM are clearly you know on a par, if not only maybe half an inch behind the Calex right now in Moto2, and they are the only two chassis at the moment worth a damn. Speed up has not been the same since Sam Lowe's left them. Um, that's that goes without saying. They've tried guys like Simone Corsi, and, and, and again, there's been an obvious drop in quality. And I know a lot of that is down to Lowe's being a quality Moto2 rider, and on his day, a guy that could win multiple races and challenge for a title. Um, but I think Danny Ken is a more relevant baseline for what the speed up is at the moment compared to Quattararo's victory. I don't think this is a matter of, oh, look, Danny Ken now looks stupid because look at Fabio. He's gone off and won a race. I mean, it's it's easy to do that. Um, but I think the, the first is around where Danny Kent's been finishing all year. Yeah, like, like Kent's performances this season, 17th, 12th, retirement, retirement, 21st, retirement, 21st. You know, Fabio Quattararo, if I can just find him on my list in front of me here. He's gone 20th, 22nd, 15th, 10th, 8th, 11th, 1st. That's a big jump. Yeah, the question I've got to ask is, how is your team calibrated? 
one of your bikes is winning a race and the other one is half a minute behind over a race distance. I think that's the more relevant question you need to be asking. Like, it's, I don't think it's a matter of, oh, Danny Kent is bad, ha-ha, look at him. Mm. I think it's more a case of, well, why is your car so... Why well, is your bike, should say, so disjointed in terms of overall performance where one guy can dominate and win a Grand Prix and the other guy is not in the points? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it has been a strange, strange time. And it's been an open season, it has to be said, in Moto2. That's now five different winners in the first seven races um, in Moto2. Bagnaia, Oliveira, Baldazzari, Pasini, and now Quartararo. Um, and there have been five winners in Moto3 as well this season from the seven races we've had so far. We'll talk about that uh, shortly. Um, but the championship is still very, very close. Francesco Bagnaia... Um, after Le Mans, looked like he was starting to pull away with it and dominate this championship, but he's gone fourth and eighth since then. Um, before we talk about Bagnaia's race, we have to talk about the man that's chasing him down, Miguel Oliveira, uh, who's now gone first, second um, in the last two races from... Well, where was he on the grid in Mugello, Drake? 14th, wasn't it? Um, I, I, might, I think it was a bit lower than that. Hang on, I think it might have been like 14th or 17th place well, he, he started. Seven, he was 17th in Barcelona. Uh, but Mugello, mm. the race before, I'm trying to think. I think he was 14th on the grid, which means he's finished. He's taken 45 points from a combined, you know, his two grid positions add up to 31 uh, from from his last two races um, in grid slots. And I mean, KTM cannot continue to get away with this, surely. But for Oliveira to continue to qualify badly, um, you know, that's you know, we we discussed this after Mugello how they clearly have a problem with single lap pace and switching on the tires and. It must be. It must be that, that. That must be what it is because we always talk about KTM in Moto Two about oh they're so good at nursing their tires and having tire left at the end of a Moto Two race, which is all right. well and good. But they're clearly not switching them on in qualifying, are they? Um, well, but yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's tricky because to, for, for some added context in Mugello, Miguel Oliveira started that started that race from eleventh on the grid, um, but he was the top KTM. And he was only half a second off pole position. Um, and I think James Tozlan made the same point during the race itself. Tozlan talked about how Oliveira was starting 17th in Barcelona, but he was only 0.8 off pole position. So it's again, it's not like he's a million miles yeah, away. I think, unfortunately, yeah, because all the bikes are so similar, half a tenth could cost you a row. That's how... That's how unfortunate it can be because you look at some of these gaps and again they look at Magello grid. You're looking at three hundredths, four hundredths, sometimes even less than that between some riders on the grid. Unfortunately, eight tenths is a bit on the steep side in Moto Two. And like for some context, I'm, I'm glad Tozan pointed this out during the race. That yeah, it's not quite as simple as well. Oliveira is a terrible qualifier. Um, I think it's more a case of holy crap, these these Moto Two grids are really close in qualifying, and a tenth can cost you dearly mm. out here. Um, I don't think, Oliveira... think Catalonia was an Oliveira issue though, because he wasn't just he wasn't the top KTM in qualifying about no, this... He was the fourth fastest KTM. Yeah, um, Binder was had... on the second row. <laughs> Binder was fifth. Sam Lowe's was ninth, and Ika Laquona was fourteenth on the grid. Um, right. KTM. So Oliveira was there was only one KTM that was slower than him in qualifying, and that was the recovering from injury, Domi Agata. Yes. Um, Dude, yeah, just which is which, which, exactly which which illustrates just how much he struggled. I mean, he he had had a crash earlier in the weekend, and there was talk that he was perhaps sort of riding slightly slightly um, sort of half injured, if you like, in qualifying. But but even <laughs> so, qualifying went badly for Oliveira, but the race didn't. Um, and mainly, Dre, the hard work for Oliveira 
um, in climbing to up the order was done in a tremendous opening lap. I, I, I mentioned this before we went on the air. It's, it's the best GP start I think I've seen since Mark Marquez went from the back of the grid to 12th at Valencia 2012, um, where through two corners, Mark Marquez is 12th. Um, this was a similar case where Oliveira was starting 17th, and I think he was 5th by the time he got to turn 4. Um, it was a stunning, stunning start from Miguel Oliveira. One of the best I've ever seen. Um, this kid is insanely talented, I have to say. Like, his racecraft is absolutely world-class. Um, like, I'm, I'm glad he's going to be in MotoGP next year because... Like he, he keeps, like, I know he keeps making his life difficult for himself in qualifying, which is one thing. But if you're when your racecraft is that good, who frigging cares? Like, like that's that's, that's an insane qualify. Yeah, my god. Um, yeah, please give him a front row start every once in a while. And yeah, yeah. I mean, he at one point he was leading the race. He bullied Alex Marquez out of the way and was leading the race before Cotterrari tried, tried to put the hammer down and then put himself in front instead. Um, but. Oliveira at one point had gone from 17th to 1st. I mean, in, in probably, what, four or five laps. The, the kid is insane. Um, there's no other way to describe it. And, you know, quite rightly, only a point of the championship. I mean, he very quietly, I mean, he's not had, he's not stolen all the headlines in Moto2 this year. But he's only, he's only been off the podium twice this season. And he's been, you know, in the top six every single race. He's not really had a bad round, um, given where the state of the field is at the moment. He's he's riding very, very well. He's riding very consistently. Um, his race, race, race craft is excellent. He's, he seems to just just completely mastered this KTM a lot more than his teammate Brad Binder has um, in the grand scheme of things at the moment, where Binder still has these reckless races sometimes, like, like we had in Haref, and mm. Binder seems to be hitting the wall at, at sixth place. He's finished there five times this season yeah. already. Five sixth-place finishes for Brad Binder. He must be really getting sick and tired of that sixth place. Um, but Oliveira, a, another stunning bit of racecraft to get himself up the field so quick. He did it in Haref, where I think he was 14th, and he went up to finish second in that one too, and he's done it again here. Um it's 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 quality it really is again if he he needs to stop making his life so hard for himself just by giving him a bit more of a clean run um especially at the start of races but as said it's clearly not hurting him very much when he can get through the field that quickly it's uh it's it's very jonathan ray-esque um from miguel at the moment and that's and that's and that's a very very high amount of praise you can say regarding his his um his ability it's very impressive and i I, I look I look, I look forward to seeing um, if he's able to, to, to take a few more wins and take the fight to Banyaya, who was a who was a bit mediocre. He just didn't have the overall pace that he's, he's shown on occasions this season. Yeah, he did. And I have to say, Oliveira's race on Sunday pretty much went entirely to plan right away until about half half the straight after the finish line. And obviously the race he finished by then, so in many ways mm. it doesn't matter. But we do have to talk about this, Dre. What happened... Uh, 300 mm. meters or so down the straight after the checkered flag where Miguel Oliveira sits up he's cruising at sort of well a quarter of the racing speed as you would after the race is finished yeah. and suddenly gets tailgated by a rider going at full speed that rider is Simone Corsi um, now Simone Corsi has been handed a back of the grid start for Assen and um, I, I haven't heard Simone Corsi try to argue with it I know it probably the kind of thing he'd do but he can have no defence sure. here can he why would any rider be going at full racing speed after the race is finished. Quite rightly, yeah. I mean, there is zero defence for that, in my humble opinion. I mean, it's 
it's basically the same penalty Carol Hanukkah got when he was in Moto3, where he basically... I think you think you hit Guevara after the bell, um, um, basically after the after the race had finished in uh, in that ref, he was almost headhunted him, so to speak. I don't, I don't think this was deliberate. Yeah, Marquez had a very similar penalty for running into Willerot after the checkered flag in Australia, um, yeah. in 2011. Well, he was given a six, he was given a six second penalty in qualifying, which was as good as a back of the grid start. Um, right. where they had to give him the exact figure, which would put him at the back of the grid, but put him within 107 percent and allow him to start. Um, but yeah, yeah what, why this could have been so bad was that the race had finished. So obviously riders are rightly slowing down, but this was on the straight. So it's not as if there was runoff either side of them. There was a concrete wall over to the left, um, right. which, which one of them could easily have fallen into. But also when the race finishes, marshals come onto track. Um, so, you know, you've got marshals at the side of the road waving flags who could easily have been caught up in this. At some races, of course, you could have spectators on the track, um, mm-hmm. which again could make it worse. And you've got a rider still travelling at racing speeds. You know, this could have been so, so much worse than it was. Um, fortunately, Oliveira was confused and nothing else, wondering why the hell someone had run into him um, after the race had finished. And he had to basically make it back to part Fermi and the podium on foot. Um, but Simone Corsi, yeah, I mean, he, he escaped injury, but didn't escape penalty, which was just as well. Um, right, because it was it was an awful piece of riding, and quite rightly he's been sent to the back of the grid um, for Assen as a result of it. Um, you mentioned uh, Francesco Bagnaia, who who finished down in eighth, continuously the championship, but only leads it by one point. But in many ways, if it depends if he glasses half empty or half full, because he you know he didn't panic in many respects. He still got it to the flag and still banked some points, um, which could prove crucial at the end of the season. And it kind of illustrates Dre just who the classes of this field have been in Moto Two this season. Um, when I tell you that only two riders so far this year in Moto2 have scored points in every single race, and they are Banyaya and Oliveira. Indeed, and I think there are only two of the three that have not had a single DNF. I think only Andre Telly and, ironically, Simone Corsi are the other two on that front, where, yeah, you're absolutely right. They are the class of the field right now, where they, they just, I mean, that was, by Benyai's standards, a substandard round by finishing in eighth. No one's denying that. It was a bit like Argentina. He just wasn't a contender around there either. He finished in ninth. But um, by any measure, again, like, he, he didn't panic. He didn't override the bike. He didn't have a DNF. Um that was, you know, that was the most that was on the table for him. You know, I mean, in Moto2, we've been such a close and such a competitive class. You know, that is, you, you can have bad days. Quite often you can have bad days where you can either have a crash or you're just not in contention. And better to bank some points than have a donut next to your name on this occasion. So, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, those, I think, I think Oliveira and Banyai are the two best riders in the class right now. They don't make very many mistakes. Oliveira's racecraft has been superb. When Banyai is on it, he wins. It's as simple as that. Um, he has, I think, more ultimate pace during the race than anyone else does when he's clicking with that, with that, um, Calyx that he's got at the moment. Um, so yeah, at the minute, I think those two are the class of the field. And I think Alex Marquez and Lorenzo Baldassari, who are third and fourth, being about a race back, is it does make sense given they both have critical DNFs to their name. Alex didn't finish in her F, that was a silly crash from him from when he was in third place that day. And Baldassari didn't, um, you know, overdid it at Le Mans basically. So yeah, it, it makes sense that they're about a race behind. It's a shame because we could, we could have had a, a real four-way title fight, but it's starting to have Oliveira and Banyaya start to break out a little bit from that leading group. So, 
We'll be interested to see if Baldassari and Marquez can pull them back in at some point. Hmm. Uh, next round, of course, is at Assen. Um, as you're listening to this, a week from now. Um, here's how the Moto2 race finished. Then Quattararo, the first-time winner from Oliveira and Marquez. Um, the Dynabolt uh, Calexes of Schrotter and Vieje continued to figure around the top six. and They were fourth and fifth, respectively, ahead of the uh, forever sixth Brad Binder. Uh, Lorenzo Baldassari, <laughs> seventh. Pekka Bagnaia, eighth. Sam Lowe's, ninth. That's his best of the year. Um, not sure whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but he was ninth ahead of Iket Lacuona, his teammate, um, who completed the top 10. Uh, Andrea Locatelli, 11th. Simone Corsi, 12th. And this, again, just illustrates how dumb he was after the race to take out Oliveira, given that Oliveira finished the race some, what, 13 and a half seconds ahead of him. So it took 13 and a half seconds for Simone Corsi to come down the straight and tailgate into him uh, at full racing speed. Um, mm. He was 12th ahead of Nagashima. Uh, Raul, uh, sorry, Augusto Fernandez is uh, uh, namesake Raul's in Moto3. Uh, Augusto Fernandez, who was the replacement for Hector Barbara at the uh, Pons team, he was 14th ahead of the fit again Remy Gardner, um, who took the final point uh, in 15th. Bagnaia leads the championship by just one point now over Oliveira. It's 119 over 118. Marquez is third on 94, one ahead of Baldassari in fourth. Uh, Vieke fifth on 70. Joan Mir, who crashed out of this race um, shortly after <laughs> signing for Suzuki, uh, had his first crash of the year um, in sixth now on 64. Uh, Pacini, who also fell off, um, he's on 58 points in 7th. Binder level, uh, sorry, Binder's a point behind Pacini in 8th. Shot at ninth. Quartararo has jumped all the way into the top 10 now on 45 points. Uh, Moto3 up next, and um, as I said at the very start of this show, an utter shit show of a Moto3 race. Um, we're, we've, we've, it's been, we've had a bit of a mixed bag of Moto3 races so far this season. Some of them have been tamed by Moto3 standards. Some of them have been absolutely crackers. This was certainly the latter. Um, and before we talk about who will ultimately win it, Dre, we kind of have to go through this chronologically, don't we? So let's start with um, Jorge Martin, who took a very, very similar strategy to the one which worked for him so well in Mugello, where it was pretty clear where he thought, I don't want I want this to be as small a group as possible at the front, so I'm going to stretch these boys out right from the start. Um, right. By basically going out from the gun. He wasn't on pole this time. It was Bastianini on pole. Um, but Martin got the whole shot, essentially went on an early time attack and broke everyone bar Tatsuki Suzuki. Um, he mm-hmm. was the one rider able to keep up with him. That left us what we thought was a straight fight for the win between Martin and the Japanese until Martin crashes out uh, on lap nine. He loses the front at turn nine. And before we talk about what followed... From Jorge Martin's point of view, he's had a lot of bad luck fall his way this year. Um, perhaps wins that could have been his had other riders not crashed into him and had he not been caught up with other people's incidents. But on this mm-hmm. occasion, another donut for Martin, and this one entirely his own making. Indeed. In, in tennis circles, we would call that an unforced error. Um, and that... Like, it's a strange one because you don't normally see guys lose it at... at that very fast turn nine um just just tucked the front and just completely set out from underneath him very bizarre accident and yeah that, you're absolutely right just uh just a silly mistake from martin he's got no one to blame but himself on that one to, to crash out from the front like that is unforgivable um a, a massive massive error in a race he was probably going to finish second at worst given the way the race had played out in the early going i mean the the, the second group behind him they were giving chase, but not a, enough of a rate of knots to really be a factor in this. And yeah, like Martin's game plan was working perfectly until then. And 
yeah, it's 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 been a real shame. I mean, Martin is now becoming like a bit of a win it or bin it sort of guy now, unfortunately, where it's like he's been collected in so many other incidents now that he's now got three DNFs in the last four races. But in in those last five races, the other two have been wins. Um, well, the he's only three, got... three races he's had this season where he's had a trouble-free clear race, he's won. Yeah, like Martin is brilliant. He's the class of the field. He is a demolition job. When it comes, I've never seen a Moto Three rider with that much of a pace advantage consistently over the field. Where he can, he's the only guy I've seen in the who can stretch massive groups. I've not seen anybody else able to do that besides maybe Danny Kent in the first half of his title winning season, and even then, the field caught up to him in the second half of that season without question. Um, so. He's he's a freak in that sense where he's got so much natural pace on that bike where he can basically break the toe, which is practically unthinkable in 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 that in that sort of category now in Moto Three. But he's either been unlucky to have been collecting another instant sheer bad luck, or this case where he just made a silly mistake, and now all of a sudden we're going to be sitting there with him now, twenty three points off the title lead, asking ourselves. Is he still the title favorite now? Mm. Because, because like Marco Bezzecchi is not having very many battles here, and he had a very solid set of twenty points to take home this weekend. So the way it's going right now, Jorge Martin's got some work to do. Mm, he has. We'll talk about Bezzecchi, um in just a moment. But following on from <coughs> Martin's crash, that left um, Tatsuki Suzuki all alone, and let's let's pour one out for the Japanese because he he was dreaming at what was would have been at worst second um yeah. behind behind Martin. I mean, to be fair, we were at a stage in the race where that second group had started to calm down a bit and they were allowing Bastianini and Canet, um, the two established names, to tow them up to the front two. And yeah. they might they might have got there um anyway by the end of the race. But as it was, um Suzuki, who was using Martin as a bit of a pacemaker to tow him away from the second group, suddenly had no one to tow him away and had to do all the work himself and was unable he was as soon as he was left alone, Dre, he was reeled in with about a lap and a half. Um, they suddenly yeah. just pulled him straight back in, uh, and we had a we had a group at the front again, um, which is where the trouble started. I think we had about eleven or so riders in this front group fighting for the win, mm-hmm. and only five of them made it to the flag. Um, the first reason for that was what happened at turn four when uh, the Le Mans winner uh, Albert Arenas essentially had a bit of a brain fade, didn't he, um, into turn four, where he just completely outbraked himself and skittled out Nicolo Bulliger and Aaron Canet into the into the bargain. And, and Canet, who was, who's not even been on the podium since Argentina, he started off with two seconds and led the championship. He's not even been in the top seven since then. Um, right. He's had two eights and 11th and now two DNFs. Uh, but both Canet and Bulliger, completely innocent bystanders in basically someone else's accident. Indeed, yeah, it's 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 an unfortunate one. That's the nature of Moto Three when you race in such tight groups. You know, there's a much greater chance you get collected, and yeah, it's a real shame. Albert Arenas basically outbroke himself into turn four. You could see he was going, he was breaking way too late, and um, Budiger's taken the corner, thinking no one else is going to be there, and of course he's not seen um, Arenas just diving for the apex of, of turn four and not seen it. And they've tangled, and obviously Canet got skittled out in the process too. And um, as much as like, as much as obviously, I feel a little bit of sympathy for Nicolo Budiger. Don't shout at a man that's been stretched off like that. 
because I saw that during the race and I thought that was quite scummy. Like, uh, Reynes has clearly hurt himself. He was crawling away, had to be stretched off, and Bulliger is, is basically bollocking the man from a distance while he's being stretched off, which I think is quite disgusting, actually. Um, but, I mean, the guy's clearly hurt and injured, and I don't think he's done that on purpose by any stretch. I mean, there's a time and a place for that sort of thing. I don't, I don't think that's the one. But, um, yeah, obviously yeah, I, a very unfortunate. Know, I, I saw that as well. I mean, I'm... I'm slightly more prepared to just 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 let it go as heat of the moment loss of temper, yes. Um, yes. And, and I'd like to think that you know in in the cold heart of day Bulliger would not um, ever consider doing that. And I I did sympathise with Bulliger before he started yelling at a guy who's um, who's half conscious on a stretcher. I did feel for him. I really felt for the kid because he was you know it's been well documented how much of a bad season he's been having and how much trouble he's he's having on and off track and. Um, the kid was having his best weekend for ages. He was leading the Grand Prix a lap or two prior to this. Um, yeah. And, and looking really good. And, you know, boy, that kid deserves a result at some stage. Um, and it looked like this was going to be it. And then, lo and behold, he gets taken out by, by another rider. And, and yeah, there, there is no defence for, for shouting at a guy who's been stretched away. But um, it's pretty clear that the uh, the anger and the frustration of a year, a year or so as poor results and, and bad luck kind of came out of Bulliger there when he looked like he was finally... Yeah about to uh, break out of that cycle. Um, that was Champion, Yeah, championship-wise, Nicola Budega is the worst of the full-time riders. No right points now. yet this season. No uh, points. He's the only full-time rider not to have scored a point um, this season, which uh, which says it all. Um, he, he's having a poor time of it. Um, there wasn't... Um, oh, that wasn't the end of the mayhem, it has to be said, in that front group, because we were left with six or seven now um, at the uh, front of the field. Two more dropped out with about four laps to go into turn one, and... Uh, Again, two more riders who could arguably have felt that on another day, this might have been their race to win. In fact, Jean Massia was one of the riders who led the race at some stage and actually set the fastest lap of the race. Um, mm -hmm. to, yeah, kept the fastest lap to the end of the race. But just as he was lining himself up, perhaps a late charge to try and win the Grand Prix, he trips over Andre Mino. Yeah, he trips over Mino and ends up taking him out off. Uh, oh god, it's just, just another case where guys are just all just trying to um, find some space as they were going four or five wide into turn one, and you know one guy's taking you know evasive evasive action, and you know one thing leads to another, and next thing you know you got two more dudes in the canvas, um, and yeah, it, it became a leading group of five, which is just unfortunate, really. Um, it's one of those things. Mm. Um, and, uh, much to the delight uh, of BT Sport, it was being led at this point by John McPhee. Um, of course. On the CIP Green Power KTM. Uh, he was going to finish fourth. Um, and through this race that we've just described, where so much chaos and so much carnage happened, the guy that started on pole won it anyway. So what was the point in all of that? Um, and then <laughs> Bastianini um, comes through to win. It's his first win since late 2016, back when he beat Brad Binder at Mategi, I think it was, from memory, um, mm -hmm. where Bastianini took his last win. Um, and not just in terms of his career and where his career was heading, but in terms of this year's championship, this was a win that Enea badly needed. Super badly. He, he had a pretty bad season by again by a guy, for a guy that we thought was going to be a title contender this year. We thought this might finally... Be the year that Enea Bastianini puts it together and actually has a, a serious title challenge. And he's, he's still got some work to do. I mean, he's still 35 points off the top of the championship, but that's a start. Um, he needed a win really badly. We know he's capable of wins. He always has been. 
And yeah, he, he managed to survive the chaos, broke out about a two or three bike length advantage on the final lap, and no one was able to get close to him. And he took what looked like actually a fairly comfortable victory in the end. He wasn't really pressed all that hard on the final lap. And yeah, a win he badly needs for his championship to get it back in line. Because again, the, the fortunate thing for him is that so many other contenders and guys that would normally be taking points off him did not finish this race. So yeah, well done to Bastianini and Bezeki. Sometimes it, 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 there is, you know, an element of safety in just surviving sometimes. And uh, he did that excellently here. Yeah, and from Bastianini's point of view, of course, McPhee led onto the final lap, but Bastianini just pulled the pin, didn't he, on that final lap, got yeah. it to the front at turn one, and then just basically, basically did a one-lap time attack on the final lap and was able to basically stay far enough clear of the rest of the field into all the crucial breaking zones that no one could really have a go at him on that final lap. But I want to mention Bezeki though, who finished second, um, extensive championship lead now. It's 19 points over Dijan Antonio, who um, went off onto the gravel early on, dropped outside the top 20, but through attrition and um, not giving up, clawed his way back into seventh um, and is now up into second place. Martin's 23 points off the lead, but um, it, 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 it's tempting initially to look at that from Bezeki and think so much carnage happened in that race and you know there was a bit of luck in staying out of all the trouble and getting to the flag in second. Yep. Um, but I don't see it that way, Dre. I mean, Bezeki said after the race, and my attitude was I had to try and stay at the front of the group all the time, which is the best way of staying out of trouble, I find. And um, we'll look at his results now. He's had that one DNF since um, the first round in Qatar where he was going to be on the podium had he not fallen off uh, when he tangled with Martin. But he's been on the podium in every race since Qatar um, except for Le Mans. And I don't look at races like that and Bastianini getting to the flag in second and think that was lucky. I think, no. That's what champions do. Yep. That is exactly what champions do. Is you, you points and you score and it's not your best day. But Zeki never really like he was going to win the race. And, oh, okay, he didn't in the end, but he still took an excellent 20 points. And he's done that now. Three of the last four races he's been involved in. And of course, he was, he was, he was skittled out a little bit at Le Mans. Um, but he's now consistently scoring points. He's done it five out of the last six races. Um, where he's now finished on the podium, and besides that, you know, opening his face, you know, he's opening race in Qatar, he's been, you know, the fallen in Jorge Martin's side, and for the whole championship, he's not having bad days. He's always up the front, and if you're doing that in Moto Three, you are you are a very very good rider indeed. So, um, yeah, as it stands, the consistency is really paying off for him. And you know what, with guys like Martin and Canet and Mino not finishing. Um, he's now got a 19 points. He's got a clear advantage now at the top. He's actually got a little bit of a safety net in front of him now going forward. Mm, he has. He's he's now, as you say, 19 points clear. Uh, Dijan Antonio takes second. He is, um, as I scan down the uh, Moto3 results, I think Dijan Antonio is now the only rider um, to have scored points in every round. In fact, he is. Uh, Mino was the other, but he, of course, crashed out or was taken out in, in Catalonia. Um, so Dijan Antonio, through sheer consistency, um, uh-huh. is, is up to second now in the championship and he just needs to try and sort of add wins to that, doesn't he? And he'll, uh, he might well be a real contender too. Dijan Antonio, who um, speculation um, built up over the weekend, or it was certainly the first time I'd heard it, um, that Dijan Antonio might well be replacing Jorge Navarro at the Grassini Moto 2 team um, next Ooh. year. Um, we shall see. We'll keep an eye on that one. And if any news does break on that uh, concrete news, we will bring it to you on this show. Um, so the Moto3 result, Bastianini, the winner for the first time this season um, from Bezeki. Congratulations, though, to Gabby Rodrigo, his first career podium. 
um, in third position, although he was second coming out of the final corner. Um, the uh, extra straight line speed that Pazeki always seems to have just got into the finish line uh, three thousandths of a second ahead uh, of the Argentine. Um, but Rodrigo gets his first podium in third. John McPhee in fourth. Quite comfortably his best result of the season so far. Um, Tatsuki Suzuki did stick around and ended up fifth um, ahead of his compatriot Keita Toba, um, who finished a career best sixth. Gian Antonio um, climbed to seventh in the end ahead of Alonso Lopez, um, who we haven't really seen since that miraculous performance in Jerez earlier this year. Um, the next of the Spanish rounds saw him return to form in eighth ahead of Denis Foggia ninth um, and Raul Fernandez, who's the current junior world championship leader. Um, he took 10th um, on the extra Ankel Nieto uh, KTM. Uh, Jakub Konfal was 11th ahead of Maka Yachenko, the Kazakh, in 12th. Adam Norad in 13th. First points of the season for Nakarin Atarat Fubapat in 14th. And Livio Loy takes the final point um, in 15th position. Uh, Bezeki's championship lead, as we told you, is up to 19 points over Dijan Antonio, with Martina further four points back in third. Bastianini is up into fourth. Uh, on 68, so he's now 35 off the lead. Uh, Canet is 5th on 61, 42 back. Rodrigo is up to 6th on 57. One point ahead of Mino, who drops a spot to 7th. Nicolo Antonelli, who dislocated his shoulder and didn't ride last, uh, last weekend, he is now 8th on 44 points. 3 ahead of Jakob Confail in ninth, And Marcos Ramirez completes the top 10. Uh, right now, time for perhaps the shortest MotoGP roundup in the history of Bike Live. Um, as we look back at <laughs> the Premier Class last weekend, um, in Catalonia, and it has to be said, Dre, um, two things really stood out um, in the run-up to the Grand Prix, as in two things from free practice and qualifying that really took us uh, took our attention. Um, the first of them was the miraculous save of Mark Marquez in FP4. Um, now, this, this is perhaps the most uh, memorable thing to happen all weekend, which kind of says a lot, but no matter how many times this guy continues to do this kind of thing, it doesn't make it any less impressive, does it? This, this, this is... There's no words to describe this. This this is outrageous. Um, he was impressed by it. Um, Yeah, I think he was giving it the finger wag afterwards. Like, holy cow. Um, Yeah, to put it into perspective, it's the final corner. It's Catalonia Corner itself, the, um, turn 14. Um you're going into that corner at about 140 miles an hour. He's done again. It's a long he, corner. He, as well. It's a long corner, and the slide that he puts on through there, and he doesn't fall off. This is at 125 miles an hour. This was clocked at. Um, it's it's unheard of. It's even. I mean, when we talk about the Valencia save um, towards the end of. That was at 95 miles an hour. This is at 125, and he saved it. On his knee and on his hat and his arm. I do not know how he does this. This is—he's the only man on the planet that can do this. It is utterly insane. Um, like I, I don't even know how to keep describing this. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where he's—he's he's had five or six absolutely outrageous saves now. Um, and they're, they're putting montages of this shit together now. He's having so many of these and like, I, this one might be the greatest save of them all. This, this, this. This this one's even this one's definitely up there with Valencia. That's just absolutely outrageous. Like you you, you can see this like this looks like something out of Photoshop. Like how on earth is he saved that? It's it's utterly ridiculous. Yeah, go back if you if you obviously if you're listening in the UK, you can do this. If you're not, then I'm afraid um, you'll discount what I'm about to say. Um, if you're listening in the UK, you can head over to BT Sports uh, MotoGP Twitter account. 
um, at BT Sport Motor GP, and they still have the video on there. And just, just watch it. Uh, it's not often I would recommend the commentary, but listen to it with the commentary. And Keith oh, yeah. and Neil Hodgson's just, they're aghast that how on earth has he stayed on that bike? Um, it's yeah. almost like just yeah. amazement of, he saved it. Um, and, and, and that's the that's the thing with Mark Marquez. He does it time and time again, but it still amazes us that he, he's able to do this because he's defying the laws of laws of physics, the laws of gravity, the laws of any kind of logic on a motorcycle um, to be able to do those kind of things to the point where um, his leather manufacturers are actually designing special patches on Mark Marquez's elbows to stop him from burning a hole through his leathers because they know he's going to need that part of his arm um, to right. rescue the bike. And it's amazing. He's now having leathers custom-made for that, entire, that exact eventuality, um, which is extraordinary. Mark Marquez, again, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but as I say, there were two things that stood out from free practice and qualifying. That was one of them. The other one, Dre, was just how incredible and how impressive a pace Jorge Lorenzo seemed to have um, uh, over the long runs. In FP4 and in free practice, he looked to have the superior pace um, over a rich distance. And come 2 o'clock on Sunday, so it proved. Yes, um, it's it was the sort of thing that was like Lorenzo was fast in practice. Um, we I didn't read too much into it, but as the season as as the weekend went on, yeah, he just proved that he, he just was that fast all the way through. Um, Marquez was the only guy that could even stay with him in the early going to that race. Um, but Lorenzo again, just like his pace is just metronomic. It is utterly insane how he keeps doing this. Where. At one point, like they are, they are literally basically just going. You can measure his lap times to within hundreds of a second. Well, let, I'll, let alone... I'll list them out to you because I've got the lap charts in front of me. It's a 24 lap race. Um, obviously, discount the first lap because it's from a standing start. But from lap two, Lorenzo goes 40. 40.4, 40.2, 40.1, 40.3, 40.1, 40.0, 40.0, 40.1, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 40.0, 
because Lorenzo mm-hmm. could just continue to run at that pace for the entire Grand Prix. Um, right. and it's just it's just a sheer reminder of when he's on form, when he's got the bike suiting him, and when everything's in harmony, there are precious few, if anybody in the world, as good as Jorge Lorenzo. It is it is a pleasure to watch, even if it's not necessarily particularly exciting to watch um, if right. you're after a particularly close Grand Prix. Um, because as you say, Marc Marquez pretty much settled for second and decided 20 points was enough for him once Andrea De Vizioso crashed from behind him uh, out of third place. And in the entry, it kind of sums up a bittersweet race, as I've described it for Ducati, because they won the Grand Prix for the second race in a row, but their championship hopes probably died with it. Yeah, because Andrea De Vizioso hit the deck at turn five um, in the early going, trying to chase Lorenzo and Marquez. And all those points uh, he gained at Mugello, he's handed straight back again. Yeah, so we're back to where we started two rounds ago. With Andrea De Vizioso, the main type of 2017, the antagonist that took Marquez to the absolute limit um, last season, is now 49 points off the top again, and he's lost two rounds of progress trying to chase that gap up now. Um, so, championship. yeah, and now he's behind Lorenzo. Lorenzo is now ahead of the count back. They have the exact same number of points on 66. They're not even the best Ducati in the championship. That goes to Danilo Petrucci right now, who has five points more than him. Um, so, yeah, the way it's going right now, um, this year might be a write-off for Ducati because I, I can't see where they're going to get 50 points on Marquez between now and the end of the year. Marquez still has a couple of real banker circuits in front of him coming up later in the year, i.e. probably obviously the Saxon ring in a couple of rounds' time. Um, Aragon is becoming a real you know Marquez round at home for him. Philip Island, we don't talk about so much, but Philip, he's excellent around Philip Island as well. Um, he's very, very good round there too. Um, so the way it's going at the moment, um, oof, it's 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 looking rough for Ducati. I mean, Lorenzo could be the guy to spearhead the team going towards the end of the season. The way the last two rounds have gone, it looks like Lorenzo has has a number on his teammate again. Mm. Um, and Dovi, who you know was the you know the fight to the all round package of last season, now in, in the last three races made two very silly mistakes. Mm. Uh, when we look at the championship, it's a bit of a strange dynamic. When we look at the championship picture, in that. When you look at it in pure points terms, you think, well, we've got a championship on because Mark Marquez leads Valentino Rossi by 27 points and they were second and third respectively at the weekend. Rossi just a place behind Marquez in the race. So you think, if you just looked at it without realising which bikes they're all on, you'd think, oh, well, Rossi's limited the damage and he's only lost one one position and three points, four points um, to Mark Marquez. But the one bike that has the pace to give Mark Marquez a headache and beat him regularly is the bike that's been run by the riders in 7th and 8th in the championship. Um, right. And if anything, Dre, when we look at the season that we've seen so far, Valentino Rossi is kind of punching above his weight by even being this close. Indeed. Um, simply put, just not going wrong and just racking up 3rd place and 4th place finishes in, in a field where a lot of guys are crashing at the moment. A lot of guys are falling off the bikes, trying to chase each other and whatnot, and being, you know, whatever the situation may be. Um... Rossi, on the account of not making very many errors, all of a sudden is now second overall and only 27 off the top of the title race right now. And He's essentially doing yeah. what he did in 2015, but on a much inferior bike. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think Rossi's going to win the title by doing this. Or he's going to have to win races. And, you know, Assen might be the, the one golden chance he's got left like he did last year. The one race he won last year was an Assen. He's talking that down. 
Yeah, and right now, Valentino is not confident on that. I don't think the Yamaha is on the same level it was last year. Um, um, the way it's going right now. So I think Rossi's played. I mean, this is his signature circuit. He's won here, what was it, 10 times Valentino's won around there? So Including, it's... what, three of the last five years? Yeah, exactly. And this this is arguably Rossi's best circuit now. And even he's talking now in Aston's chances too. So the way it's going, like, Rossi's probably in the fight for second at the moment um, between him and his, his teammate Mavericks um, in there. So again, he's, he's not having terrible days, but he's just not performing on that level at the moment. But they're not they're not they're not having DNFs, and that right now in itself is valuable. Mm. And outside of Mark Marquez, with mean, the championship positions reflects it anyway. But I'd say outside of Marquez, Valentino Rossi is doing as good a job as anyone. Um, this season in MotoGP and he's, he seems to, to have Maverick Vinales firmly in his back pocket at the moment which is not something we thought we'd be saying 12 months ago um, because yet again we seem like a stuck record that we say this after every MotoGP race now this is at least four times now this season where we've said Maverick Vinales finishes sixth all the damage done on lap one it happened again Maverick Vinales starts well well in the Falling down in the really early going, it's uh, it's not pretty uh, to say the least. Again, it's another case where Vinales' pace gets better as the race goes on, but he seems to it seems that he can't ride this bike when the fuel when you know, when, when it's when it's on a full tank of fuel. It's very weird. Um, it's happened again. It's not the first time it's happened this season, and it's it's it been a it's, be been a it's not it's clearly not a new tyres issue because he qualifies well. Right. Um, you'd f- it's got to be fuel, and like, uh, how do you get around this? I mean, like, you, I guess you could, you know, per se, run more heavy, more maybe run more fuel load setups in practice. But like, this wasn't a problem for Maverick last year. So it's happened this season. This has really happened, where you know, this has become a trend where he just falls away at the start of a race, and then, then it will come back in the second half. But this wasn't a problem for Maverick last year, not at all. I don't, I don't know what's caused this. Um, I'm still trying to figure it out, and uh, I've got nothing for you on this one. It's very weird. It is very weird. Maverick Yannis finished in sixth behind a couple of Hondas. Um, Cal Crutchlow in fourth. Um, if ever anything just exemplified Cal Crutchlow's don't doubt me mantra, it was this one where he was essentially told by Bridgestone and by Honda that, you know, we can't make this medium or you can't make this medium uh, front tyre, a uh, medium rear tyre work. He did and finished fourth um, with Danny Pedroza in fifth. Um, and a decent enough ride and a decent enough performance and finish from Cal Kutzler Dre, who's kind of blue hot and cold this season. Of course, he did win the cheer, he did win the Argentine Grand Prix early in the season and led the championship result, and then kind of fell off the radar a little bit since then. Um, what's he what's he done since then? He's had um, a couple of DNFs back to back, or a couple of non-scores, then an eighth and a sixth, now a fourth, um, and kind of back at the level he was operating at right at the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see Crutchlow back to something near his best. He's had, you know, he had a pretty wretched time off directly after that Argentina win. He was, he, he was starting on pole position in RF, and that fell apart very quickly. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was in a he was in a dog fight with Drosa pretty much all race long, and he beat him to it fair and square. He did a very very good job where that's concerned. Um, that was the maximum that was on the table for him that weekend. He was it was in a fight with with Pedrosa, and, and you know we all know Pedrosa is no slouch. Um, and he came out on top. He, he he did it very very well indeed. And 
yeah, that was a solid performance. Only less less than 10 seconds off the win really isn't that bad. Um, only five off Marquez is the, is the top Honda. That's where Crutchlow though really should be um, um, as a rider at this point. So, I mean, you, you can't moan. Fourth place isn't a bad result at all. Mm, yeah, and uh, usually it's at this stage that we find ample more issues to discuss from us GP race. But apart from Takagami wiping Bradley Smith out, that was about it. Um, so, so here's the result. Jorge Lorenzo, the winner from Mark Marquez. Um, four and a half seconds in it at the end. Lorenzo just breaking Mark Marquez as Marquez settled for 20 points. Valentino Rossi, six seconds off the win in third. Um, that's about where Yamaha are these days. Cal Crutchlow, fourth. Um, narrowly edging out Pedroza and Vinales in the battle for fourth, fifth, and sixth. Joan Zarco, seventh. He's kind of fallen off the radar. He's had a couple of poor rounds since his... Um, home pole position at Le Mans. Uh, he was seventh ahead of Danilo Petrucci. Alvaro Bautista, who's had as good a result as he's had all season um, on the uh, independent Chicati with the Ancon Nieto team. Um, that's two ninths in a row for him. Uh, with Andrei Inoni, that was the best Suzuki could manage down in 10th position. Uh, a bit of a poor weekend or a poor Sunday for them. Paul Spargo on the sole KTM to make the checker flag in 11th. Mika Calio crashed out on the opening lap. Uh, Scott Redding 12th on the solar Prilia to not break down. Um, 12th for him. Carol Abraham 13th. And Franco Morbidelli, the last classified finisher in 14th, although he had problems as well, got back out on track and finished three laps down and got a couple of points for it. Uh, no fewer than 12 non-finishers, um, including Siren, Rabat, Miller, Smith and Akagami, who we told you about. Rinzu broke down. Doviu crashed. Xavier Simeone virtually crashed in every session last weekend. Uh, Alexis mm. Spargaro, Tom Luti. Um, and so it goes on. 12 non-finishers, nearly, a th- well, almost one short of half the field um, failed to finish um, in Barcelona. Championship standings now look like this. Mark Marquez on 115 points. He extends his lead over Valentino Rossi to 27. Uh, Maverick Vinales is a further 11 points back in third. Um, Zarco is four points behind Vinales in fourth. Petrucci's fifth. Crutchlow is sixth. Lorenzo, Davizioso and Yenone are all level on 66 points in 7th, 8th and 9th respectively uh, with Jack Miller who is another not to finish uh, down in 10th on 49 points. One spot ahead of Danny Pedroza in 12th. Next round of the MotoGP Moto2 and Moto3 Championships as we mentioned earlier on is one of the race weekends of the season. One we always look forward to. It is the TT Acid uh, which is in around about a week's time. to BSB, who were back in action last weekend at Snetterton after around a month off. Of course, since we last saw British Superbikes out on track on TV, uh, we had the terrible news of Shaky Burns' debilitating accident at Snetterton in testing. Um, We're not going to see him again this season, but good to see via his various social media um, uh, channels that he is uh, on the mend and recovering well. Um, as we hope to see him again on a superbike perhaps next year. It's pretty much certain now we're not going to see him for the rest of this season. Um, and not a lot has changed apart from that, really, outside of Shaky Burns' absence because Leon Haslam remains the class of the field. Um, once again, Dre, two very, very classy victories um, for Leon Haslam who continues to prove that he is a superbike rider of the highest class and quality. 
um, certainly in, on British shores. And we were discussing this, weren't we, before we started, how he's now won five in a row. He's now 64 points clear at the top of the championship um, in real time. Of course, the showdown will change that. But it doesn't necessarily look like he's a mile better than everybody else. I mean, both of his race wins at Stettiton were by less than a second. In fact, the second of them was by less than a tenth of a second. But this guy is, as I say, such a classy operator and he continues to find a way of winning. Indeed he does. Um, again, it, it doesn't feel like he's won the last five races. And that's not that's not to you know, dismiss his performances or to, or to talk down of his performances. He's, he's been fantastic. And that's just the thing about it is that it's, it's to, he's just picked his spot so well. And he's he's just established himself as the class of the field in a field that is, you know, still so up and down right now. A lot of the quality riders we expect um in in bsb have been up and down um a lot, a lot of the season i mean we saw the disastrous re- this weekend has been from bradley ray we'll get to that in a bit but haslam you know is he seems to have just a little bit more in him compared to a lot of the other guys in the field i mean there was two professional jobs here race one you know he narrowly beat out glenn Irwin in a race that you know he, he had to work his way from sick to get to the front he did a very good job there race two was a lot more of a dogfight. josh brooks tried to throw the house in at the last minute and, and Haslam survived, and, and, and again, one, one by an O's in this case, basically. Um, he's doing an excellent job. He, he, he and to, yeah, to do this on the soft tire, which he, he's always struggled with, and to win at Snetton, which he's never won at before, it goes to show you that you know, okay, it's obviously a, a bummer that Shaky's not around, but you can only beat who they put in front of you. And Haslam is doing a spectacular job right now. Yeah, this is a team and a rider operating at the top of their game because, as you mentioned, Haslam. Um, hadn't won there before, and he, he was quick to point out that Stetterton, um, and he likened it to Thruxton, um, which is another very fast circuit, and Branch GP, a circuit where he goes to expecting to have a tough weekend because it doesn't either suit his style or the bike or the setup that he has on that bike. Um, mm-hmm. So for him to leave the place like Stetterton with maximum points um, is ominous um, for the rest of the field. He is looking so, so good um, at the moment, and and yeah, he's, he just finds a way to win. He's just, he's able just in these close dogfights, just, he's always able just to, to find the right strategy, find the right, the right way around it. Um, obviously that first race, he had Glen Irwin on his tail throughout, but just doesn't, he just doesn't make mistakes as the has him. He just did not give Glen Irwin a sniff. Um, and of course he, he did duff up Glen Irwin earlier in the season at Brands around the Indy circuit, didn't he, at that final corner, mm-hmm. um, earlier in the year. So that's the second time he's denied Glen Irwin in a very, very close, um, race. Um, that second race, though, Dre, and the aforementioned dogfight with uh, Josh Brooks um, came to a head on the final lap. Um, now, they'd both been caught by Jake Dixon, who we'll talk about shortly. Um, but I, I want to talk about what happened on the run to the line. Um, mm. Because Josh Brooks basically did the only thing he could do, which was try and dive up the inside of Haslam into the final corner and mess up his exit. Um, right, but Haslam still got a better exit as he would because he'd taken the racing line and got the better exit out of the corner and they're now heading towards the finish line side by side on the approach to the line there is a slight right kink before they come onto the main straight but even so Josh Brooks appears to go hard left into uh, Leon Haslam now Brooks said afterwards that Haslam was coming past him quicker than he thought um, and therefore was probably trying to slot in behind him rather than you know, straight to the side of him, which I'm struggling to buy. Um, and mm. and and I have to say, Leon Haslam was incredibly 
phlegmatic about it after the race. He kind of just said, well, you know, it, you know, it was a bit hairy, but it's all right because he won. Um, but yeah. that was another one, much like the incident we discussed post the Checker Flag in Motor 2, where I, I watched that in real time and thought, that deserves a second look from the stewards. That could have been horrendous. Yeah, that could have been a potential disaster at over 160 miles an hour. That is a... That's the fastest part of the track, and uh, oh boy, that that was very hairy. And like um, in real time, it looks like Brooks has intentionally tried to run Haslam onto the grass, which you can you might be able to get away with in F1 if it was if you had four wheels and a lot more grip. But this is two wheels; you cannot do that. That is an absolute no-no. Um, whether you want to buy Brooks's statement as to about you know, as to what happened, and you know whether you believe him, that's ultimately up to you. Um, in real time, it doesn't look that way. I think Haslam always had the better run. He was going to have the better run out of that corner because Brooks Brooks dive-bombed. Like, Brooks, Brooks dive-bombed and took the narrow line on the final corner. So, that was always going to be the case. Um, like, Haslam was always going to come from the corner faster. Brooks is not an idiot. I think he knows that. Um, I think he's tried to save a bit of face by doing that, but I, I really don't think... Brooks was so naive to think that Haslam was, wasn't going to come down that side of the track so quickly. I mean, the race in line facilitates that. So, yeah, I think you're right. And I and I also agree that, yeah, I think the steward should have taken another look at that because I think it was dodgy as all hell. Um, and that, you can't let that happen. That's that's a no-go. You, you cannot just simply just try to run a guy off the road like that and buy a grace. And that is a... That is a very dangerous thing to do, and even more so at that speed. That is at full racing speed towards the line. You're going about 160 miles an hour. Um, no, just no. Do not do that. That's 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 hellacious. You cannot do that at all. And whilst I, I understand why um, not a lot's been made of it since, and I guess if the two riders themselves aren't making a big deal of it, then why should we? Um, mm. Leon Haslam just basically was you know he was happy enough and you know i can understand why because he won the race i do wonder whether haslam would have been quite so chilled had jake dixon mugged them mugged the pair of them and got to the line first and won it um or if he'd ended up off the bike and on the grass or in the wall um mm -hmm. but but even so um I, I i just think it was it was over the limit of you know hard racing because you know Sometimes we see riders, you know, touching in corners, and we discuss it as hard racing. That's fine, but not in a straight at 180 miles an hour. I just, I just think that's no. too far um, from Josh Brooks's point of view. Um, if we're going to find a positive, though, and there are many to take from Josh Brooks's weekend, Ray, sure. um, is that there appeared to be a noticeable step forward from him and McCams last weekend. Now, Josh Brooks describes the uh, changes. First of all, they had an engineer from Yamaha HQ in Italy, essentially Yamaha Europe. Um, in their garage at Stetson, so some factory uh, brake power, which certainly wouldn't have gone amiss, um, and certainly helped them out. Um, but they also had a different spec of engine, um, which was a l much lesser of an engine spec. It was a more conservative engine. Um, and it didn't give them the outright top speed that he had on his previous um, engine, but um, it was more aggressive and, and was able to give him more drive through the corners, um, and able to get him off the corners quicker as well, getting him able to, to accelerate out the corner better. Um, mm -hmm. And if we're looking at Josh Brooks' season long-term, Dre, this noticeable step up appears to have brought the old Josh Brooks back, um, which long-term for the rest of the championship is 
There's a positive payment for McCamps. Yeah, he was, he was talking about that as early as Friday in practice. He was saying that, yeah, that the, the, it seems like it's the first weekend and he seems like he's genuinely confident in himself and his pace. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 again, I completely agree. I've, I think this that this was the Brooks of old um, after what's been a temperamental season with the McCams team so far. That was Brooks at his best all weekend long. Um, in both races, he, he, he rode very well. Um, you know, just a just a fraction off both wins, only one point eight off in race one, and of course, uh, a tenth off the win in race two. That's about as much as you can ask for out of any rider, really. Um, and yeah, again, a, a podium, a fourth and a third, very strong, very strong performances. Um, yeah, like again, that was the most confident he's looked all season, and I think he's right. I think I think he has found something here, and we'll see we'll see if that continues. Brooks into the top six. Um, in the championship, although Shaky Bone is still in there, um, so he's essentially fifth in the championship when we discount Shaky Bone. Um, I don't think there's a precedent to this. No, Shaky Bone's not going to make it in, but he's, he's not really lost any. He's not really lost any points to the guys outside the top six this weekend. Um, but I'm pretty sure if any if an injured rider did make it in the top six, they would essentially just pull him out of there and promote the seventh guy in. Um, so so forget Shaky Bone in the championship picture, even though he does still sit in third. Um, he's just ahead of Jake Dixon, who's fourth, essentially third, um, on 91 points. And outside of Haslam, um, Jake Dixon had the best weekend of anybody in terms of outright points. He was third in race one, second in race two, and very nearly um, caught Haslam and Brooks out on the blind side to beat them both to win race two. Um, mm. And... You know, we discussed, didn't we, before the uh, round at uh, Alton Park over the May Bank Holiday weekend, how Jake Dixon was quiz- quizzingly and bizarrely 33-1 to 1 to win this British Superbike Championship, which we, we both thought was incredibly daft uh, and incredibly right. long odds. Um, and a performance like this kind of justifies why we said that, doesn't it? Because it's clear that on pure pace, Jake Dixon is every bit as good as he was last season. Right, yeah, it looks like again Dixon of last season is back. He, um, we, we, I always agreed with you entirely when, I, when you know, when you said it seemed like a long shot that you know, what, why is his odds so so long on this one? He's 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 a guy that can win races. He was in the showdown last year. He had some fantastic rides last season, and this was this was another pair of really good performances from Dixon again here. Him being thirty three to one to me was outrageous. Um, he's a he's a much better rider than that. He should be a you know, a guy that should be thinking about challenging Haslam for the title now, especially with Shaky out of the way. Um, he will make the show, and in my opinion, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, given where he is in the standings, I think he's he's a net third overall once you take Shaky out of the picture. Um, only ten points in the regular season behind Bradley Ray now. Um, with those pair of podiums that he had. Yeah, like he should be a prime contender for the showdown. Now he's capable of podiums. He should be able to rack up some points between now and the showdown. Yeah, and of course the next round of the British Bike Championship is the scene of his breakthrough double last year um, at Knock Hill. Um, he was beaten to second in race one by Glen Irwin. Now Glen Irwin was not uh, in the battle for uh, a podium in race two um, for a very, very good reason. He was involved in an incident with uh, Bradley Ray. Now the two kissed and made up afterwards. Um, as we saw on social media, Glenn Owen was very unhappy at the time. Um, he claims he was robbed of a race two victory, um, which um, my response to be, oh, would you? Oh, you would say that, Glenn? Um, of course, because, because there's no way of proving you otherwise. Um, but um, putting that to one side, is his race one result 
um, was was very, very good. Second place for him. A very, very good dry weather performance from him. And what it does show, even when you forget the fact that he scored no points in race two, Dre, what it kind of shows us is that without Shaky Burn in the picture, perhaps B-Wise and Ducati, um, their title hopes probably aren't as remote as perhaps we thought at the time. And Glenn Irwin, he's another one who's made a noticeable step up this year. And perhaps mm-hmm. he is in a position, certainly to make the showdown, and who knows by the time we get to the autumn, maybe Glenn Owen will be in a position to perhaps carry that BYZ Ducati title challenge. Yeah, I, I talked about this off the air, where when, when Shaky's old teammate was Stuart Easton, Stuart Easton felt like a, mo- a lot more like a backup for Shaky, um, given their respective quality. Glenn Owen doesn't have that. Glenn Irwin, I think, is a cut above that. Irwin looks like a guy who can now win races and actually, you know, be a consistent contender. Someone who could be an elite guy in, in this field. Someone like a Haslam, a Bradley Ray, a Dixon, you know, uh, uh, Jason O'Halloran, that sort of level where he's now in the podiums on a regular basis. Um, he was unlucky in race two, no question about that. It's the unfortunate victim of Bradley Ray losing the front and being collected. That's... Uh, yeah, that's 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 bike racing sometimes, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, Irwin looks like a guy who should be in the showdown this year. He was on the fringes of it last year. Um, he's improved, I think, since then. Now where he can challenge for wins on a more frequent basis. Why not think about the title? Uh, why not spearhead that team while Shaky's gone? Like, there's no reason not to at the moment. Yeah, he is fifth in the championship slash fourth. Um, once his teammate drops out of there. Um, now, we, we mentioned Bradley Ray, um, who, of course, um, had his, essentially had his own accident, which collected um, Glenn Irwin um, in race two. Um, he's still second overall, is Brad Ray, because obviously the next man behind him in the championship was um, sitting in hospital with a birdcage on his head. Um, mm. And he's, he's still, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the championship... This is bizarre to say this, but he scored no points at Stetson. He's crashed out twice, but he probably hasn't lost a lot, has he? Um, he's lost right. ten. He's lost ten points in podium points to Haslam, but he's still going to make the showdown. And I guess what Bradley will be thinking coming away from Stetson is that I scored no points, but on pure pace, I was still. I still had the pace to perhaps win both races there. And he was on pole. Let's not forget as well. He did. It could be. It's more the case if he's lost ten podium points to Haslam, and that's going to be a problem. Um, that that could be problematic going forward. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, it was it was a bit, it was a bit of a bad weekend for Bradley in the sense of, yeah, he, he didn't finish either race and he both he lost the front both times. Similar corner as well, where he he's just lo- he just tucked the front and lost it. But he was leading but, race one, wasn't he? When he fell off. Yeah, exactly. He was he was leading race one. He third in race two when he crashed out. The pace is there, and like again, it just proves to Suzuki is no fluke it really is up there now as a top tier contending bike but um yeah bradley's gonna keep it up right a bit more frequently if he, if he, if he needs to get around that because yeah um that's not gonna wash in the long run you, you can have a bad weekend or two but once it gets to the showdown you, you, you could that could be problematic so yeah like it's it's slightly reassuring given the overall speed of the car but uh yeah at the moment they need more than that mm. um yeah, I mean, I I often tend to look at things a lot more glass half full than the than most. And if I'm if I'm Bradley Ray, I'm sat there thinking every round that goes by it just serves as more sort of confirmation that he is there for the long yeah. haul and he's there for the rest of the season. And that you know, this 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 early season form is not going to tail off. He's keeping this going for the entire year because 
every round that we go to is both new ground for Bradley Ray and BSB, but also new ground for this Suzuki uh, in BSB because it's not contended at this level. This 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 new GSXR one thousand, it's not contended at this level in BSB before. Um, so with every round that goes by, they continue to learn more and they continue to validate what they've what they've done so far and that they are there. Um, for the long haul. Um, as we sit here in the championship, uh, Haslam leads it from Ray and Byrne, uh, with Dixon fourth, Irwin fifth, and Brooks in sixth. Um, but if you take Shaky Byrne out, we have two riders tied for sixth. J uh, Jason O'Halloran is one, and Danny Buchan is the other. Now, Buchan had two fifth places um, uh -huh. last weekend, and um, on his return to the championship, he's having a very, very good season, is he's Buchan, on the FS3, uh, independently run Kawasaki. Um, as far as the Hondas are concerned, though, Dre, uh, both of them, of course, returning from injuries. O'Halloran broke his leg at Imola in World Superbike duty. Um, of course, hasn't really missed a, hasn't really missed a British round because there was that big one-month, uh, five-week gap. Um, Linfoot, though, racing for the first time since uh, the opening round of the season at Donington Park. And um, it was fair to say that they didn't exactly get the um, welcome back that they were hoping for in the form of a an out-of-control Andy Irwin in race one. Um, both O'Halloran and Limfoot skittled out at turn two by a rider making his British Superbike debut in Andrew Irwin on the second BYZ Ducati. And no matter how inexperienced a rider you are in the championship that you're racing in, there's no excuse for that. No, that was um, that was reckless. Fortunately, there's no getting... It's lap one. It's turn two. You can't win a race on the opening lap, but you sure as hell can lose one. And yeah, just it was it was a reckless dive down the inside. He was never going to make the apex of that hairpin, not even close. You can't do that on lap one. There's going to be at least two bikes on, on the outside of you. And in this case, there was three. He's, he's, he skittled out both Hondas and Michael Averty as well for the BMW team. I mean, fair play to him. He went to the both garages and immediately apologised. He knew he was in the wrong, which is which is good to see. Um, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, a debut to forget for Andrew Irwin on that one. Just uh, just silly riding, unfortunately, and uh, he'll learn from that. Yeah, he did a tone a little bit um, in, in race two. He finished in 10th position, um, which I guess for a rider in his second British Superbike race is, is not a bad result at all. Um, for um, for Andrew Owen, the brother, if you're wondering, yes, they are brothers, Andrew and Glenn Owen, the teammates um, at BYZ Ducati. Um, and, and we'll see how many times Andrew Owen races for that BYZ team this season. There were rumours going around that he might well be riding for them for the rest of the season. But um, if you take one look at the corresponding calendars of British Supers, Bikes and World Super Sport, in which he currently races regularly, there are a lot of clashes. Um, in fact, the only round of the World Super Sport Championship which doesn't class with BSB that remains is the final round in Qatar. Um, so if Andrew Irwin is going to race for the rest of the season with BYZ Ducati, he's essentially going to have to bin off his World Super Sport commitment. So we'll see how yeah. that transpires. Um, but from Honda's point of view, uh, point of view though, Dre, not a bad weekend, I suppose. I mean, O'Halloran scored no points, but he's still in the top six. Um, if you Once you take Shaky Burn out, he's sixth overall. Um, and Dan Linfoot, returning from injury and showing that he's clearly not missed a step, Dan Linfoot has only raced in four British Superbike races this season, uh, when you take into account all the injuries that he's had. And yet mm. he's still, uh, let's count it up, he is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. He's 11th in the Championship, slash 10th. He's raced in four races this season, and in three of them he's been 4th, 3rd, 4th. Clearly, when the rider's fully fit and the bike's fully upright, that's a weapon, Linfoot, on that Honda. 
yeah, like that, the Fireblade is good, and again, that team is good um, for sure. So, um, yeah, He's a bit of a like, false position, isn't he, in the championship? Indeed, exactly. Again, the injuries for both of their riders and time hasn't helped um, without without any doubt. But um, yeah, like without question, the Fireblade is getting better and better. It, it's a it's a contending mic now for sure, where they can regularly be in the podiums spots and like both riders i think should make the showdown by the time it's all said donna halloran is, is in the top six effectively right now and linfoot i'm sure will, will gather because i mean linfoot is a different rider from the guy he was this time last year it was it was the showdown last year it looked like linfoot had finally turned the corner um so yeah the way it's going right now i think there is a lot to look forward to in the honda team i, I think Despite the you know, the 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 results on paper being quite bad, I don't see any reason, um, you know, why both Honda still can't make the showdown. Yeah, because we still have eleven races to go um, before the showdown spots are locked in. We have two at Knock Hill, two at Branch GP, two at Thruxton, two at Cadwell, and three at Silverstone um, before we settle our top six. So a lot of time still. Um, for Limfoot to climb into that top six. And um, yeah, I'm with Dre. I think he will um, by the time we get to Silverstone um, on the first weekend of September. A um, couple of other riders that we want to mention before we move on. Um, the uh, Tyco BMW riders, of course, Michael Laverty was the other rider taken out uh, in that first lap collision with Andrew Irwin and the Hondas. Um, he, though, did uh, come back to finish ninth in race two. Christian Eden, on his return from injury, ninth and eighth for him in his two rounds. Um, he is uh, up in ninth in the championship, although I would say, um, if I was being slightly harsh on Eden, eighth and ninth do not get you in the showdown. Um, he's no. probably going to have to do a little bit more than that um, to get in, but um, a solid enough um, return from injury for him. And, you know, as I say, at least he did score points, so he's kept himself in and around the top six. The one other rider, though, that we want to mention... Um, is Luke Mossy. Um, he's not had the greatest of seasons. Of course, he's probably have um, um, he's impressed us more for his work as a World Superbike wildcard than what he's done in BSB this season. He's only got 23 points to his name uh, so far this season. Um, but what happened to him in race one deserves mentioning and um, it kind of beggars belief. A 180 mile an hour brake failure at the end of the Bentley straight um, at Snetterton. Um, he missed race two, presumably because he was still busy shitting himself. Um, oh, after what had happened, he did actually break a rib, being serious, which is um, which is why he missed mm. race two. Um, but I have to say, Dre, that's about as scary as motorcycle racing gets. Oh dear God, not another one for us for the speed fit team. We also saw Leon Haslam have one um, at a very similar speed, and that was um, the final round of the championship. championship yeah. Um, yeah, cost the championship of Brands Hatch. Um, yeah, not not ideal to say the least. Um, <laughs> it's a real shame on that one. He keeps having to Kawasaki. It's unfortunate to say the least. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, that is that is utterly terrifying. Um, no, thank you uh, to have another um, to have another you know ridiculous brake failure like that. And again, that is so dangerous. That'd be oh, my levels would be brown if that was happening. 180 miles an hour brake failure is utterly scary. Um, luckily, um, no, Mossy wasn't too seriously hurt from it. The guy needs a, the guy needs some luck. He's had it. He's had it wretched for the last season or so now. Where, where Mossy's talent is is fantastic, but he's just had uh, unmitigating circumstances really hurt him. This one, it's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame, and uh, 
it kind of again puts you into the the mind of a motorcycle racer at this level which we really struggle to do we struggle to sort of comprehend how their minds operate where we said this after haslam's crash didn't we at brands last season where it was like how do you get into that mindset where you're at 100 180 miles an hour you've got no brakes and you're traveling at that speed and you suddenly have to make the decision gotta jump off this like yeah how do you how on earth like obviously that was the clearly the right decision you can't stay on the bike yes. because you, you know you, of course. you're gonna kill you but that that's that's that part of the brain that motorcycle racers have those mere mortals don't have where it's like you've got to think so quickly and you've got to have that that part of your brain working where it's like i've got to jump off this bike even though every fiber of my being every piece of logic in my head's telling me you never jump off a motorcycle at 180, 180 miles an hour but that's what i've got to do um yeah and luke mossy was um as, as it describes in bs in mcn invisibly shaken mossy i'm not surprised um yeah he says, of course he says we've had some brake issues before but this time they completely failed i had nothing there at all so i had no choice but to bail out you're playing with people's lives when these stupid things are happening i'm speechless um which is obviously a bit of a, a pointed comment at his team and at kawasaki to um try and avoid these things from happening in the future because yeah 180 mile an hour for to have no brakes is a big big no-no uh, in British superbikes or in anything. So uh, thank goodness Luke Mossy uh, is okay yeah. um, at the end of all that. His, um, his championship, though, is looking decidedly dodgy at the moment, as we tell you now. Um, first of all, here's how the two races finished. Haslam winning race one from Irwin and Dixon, uh, with Brooks fourth, Buck and fifth, Taz McKenzie, um, brother of Taylor, uh, teammate to Brooks, sixth on the uh, other McCams Yamaha, ahead of Peter Hickman, seventh on the BM, um, fresh from his TT successes, James Ellison, eighth on the Anvil Higher Tag Yam, uh, Christian Eden ninth and Richard Cooper on the sole remaining build by Suzuki in 10th. Race two, once again, went to Haslam, this time from Buchan and Brooks. Uh, just a tenth of a second split the three of them. Limpfoot fourth ahead of Buchan and fifth. Hickman sixth. Um, Cooper seventh. Eden eighth. Laverty ninth. And Andrew Irwin in 10th position for his first BSB points. Um, Haslam leads the championship then at the moment on 165 points. Bradley Ray on 101. Still on brand. Um, Shaky Bird third on 98. Um, Dixon fourth on 91. Irwin fifth on 79. And Brooks sixth on 72. That is where your showdown spots cut off at the moment. Uh, with O'Halloran next up on 63. Ahead of Buchan also on 63. Iden on 48. And Michael Laverty completes the top 10 on 46 points. Uh, next round of the British Superbike Championships, as I mentioned, is at Nook Hill in Scotland. And that is, well, as you're listening to this, probably a couple of weeks from now. It is the 8th of July at Knock Hill. Mm-hmm. Right then, a bit of news to bring you before we go and before we preview this weekend. Um, we're once again sticking with Superbikes and um, the Endurance World Championship has its final round of the championship with the uh, world-famous Zook 8 Hour, which is in July. Now, the uh, picture for that race is becoming clearer and clearer. Um, we already told you earlier this year that Kawasaki are breaking out the big guns, or the biggest of big guns, by running oh, yeah. uh, world champion Jonathan Ray on their Team Green Kawasaki ZX-10R. Um, so Yamaha have responded um, by essentially naming the same lineup that's won the last three eight hours um, in the form of Katsuki Akasuga, um, Yamaha trusted lieutenant, and the uh, world superbike duo of and of course, these are now both World Superbike winners, Alex Lowe's and Michael van der Mark. Um, again, a strong team, Dre, to line up for Yamaha on that number 21 at the 8th hour of the season to try and take on the might of Honda and, of course, Kawasaki, who are running Jonathan Ray, um, as well as Leon Haslam, let's not forget. 
uh, on their bike this year. Um, but our major takeaway from the announcement this week about Yamaha's eight-hour commitments is just how bloody gorgeous that livery is. You know, I think it's the 20th anniversary um, the, the red, white, and, and the um, black one. It's, it's stunning. It's like a, I mentioned this before to Lewis. I used to be a, a, a black model collector when I was a child. I was like six years old. Um, and I remember the very first one I got was of that exact same R1 YZF livery, and it was just simply stunning. And uh, that, that was like 20 years in the making, seeing that again from you know, from childhood Dre to, to now. So uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, gosh, I, I, I wish you could see it more often. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's truly brilliant. I, I, I think it's fantastic, and I can't wait to see it in action. Mm, yeah, Yamaha's uh, number 21 at the Suzuka Raid Tower um, will have, as I mentioned, Katsuki Nakasuga, Alex Lowe's, and Michael Vandermark. Um, that will be their lineup uh, this year. Um, as I mentioned, Jonathan Ray will be um, part of the uh, Kawasaki team alongside Leon Haslam um, and Ka- another of Kawasaki's uh, Japanese test riders. Um, 28th and 29th of July um, is the uh, weekend where the uh, Suzuka Raid Tower will be taking place. And I can't wait for it already. Um, it's a month from now, but we can't wait for that. It's going to be a brilliant, oh, yeah. brilliant race um, in Japan. Um, we're hoping for some brilliant racing this weekend as well, as World Superbikes goes stateside to Laguna Seca um, for the American round. Um, of course, we'll be reviewing that next week here on Bike Live, although we won't, of course, have Super Sport or Super Sport 300 to talk about because it's just the Superbikes that go over um, to Laguna Seca due to uh, the uh, size of the paddock. And, of course, they share it with the American Superbikes, Moto America. Um, now, we don't know quite, Dre, what kind of racing we're going to get this weekend. Laguna Seca can be a bit hit and miss. Um, but... One thing we can say was that World Superbikes have certainly gone the right way about promoting their race weekend because uh, we were treated earlier this week to the spectacular sight of a number of World Superbikes' finest names, including Jonathan Ray, Chas Davis, and Alex Lowe's, riding across the Golden Gate Bridge on um, street models of their superbikes. Quite a sight. Oh, stunning. Um, yeah, like I mean, it's a bit of a motorsport habit now whenever there's a racing. California, someone's got to take a, a, a press shot over the over the bridge. Um, I know IndyCar did it a couple of years back for uh, for their for their return to uh, Sonoma. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, seeing the, the the bikes and the riders over Golden Gate Bridge is a hell of a sight. Fantastic way to get some promotion for what is essentially the the big biking part of the US. It's kind of, they, they love their bikes in that in that side of the world. Um, the Gunasek has got such a rich racing history with bikes and in cars in general. So yeah, fantastic a bit of promotion for the race. Hmm, absolutely now in terms of what's going to happen this weekend um one thing to point out first of all um no michael rubin rinaldi um if you, if you followed us at the start of the season you'll know this already um in that the uh junior aruba ducati team are only winning rinaldi at the european rounds which means he's not laguna second this weekend um mm-hmm. the other thing um at guandolini yamaha um no uh Andre Jezek this weekend. He's been replaced by the uh, 2016 Bike Live Loser of the Year, Carol Hanneke, um, who's, <laughs> who, who's uh, making his World Superbike debut um, this weekend. Um, so um, so he's out there. We've also got a wild card in Josh Herrin, former Moto2 tail ender um, and Moto America front runner. Um, he's wild carding on the same Yamaha that he's racing in the Moto America Championship with. Literally the same bike. Um, is riding in the Moto America and World Superbike classes uh, this weekend. So it's going to be getting the mileage in. 
um, that Yamaha this weekend, and he's been 13th quickest in uh, the two practice sessions we've had so far. We are talking to you as we record this between free practice two and practice three uh, mm-hmm. on Friday at Laguna Seca. One of our guests who's been fastest so far, listeners, correct, got to get him one, Jonathan Ray, um, who was uh, who was four tenths clear of uh, Marco Melandri and Tom Sykes, who were second and third and a hundredth apart. Um, so the tone has been set for what we're going to see for the rest of this weekend, but we shall see how it pans out. As it stands, as we're talking to you, I know this is completely redundant by the time you listen to this, but anyway, we'll tell you, Jonathan Ray from Melandri and Sykes, uh, with Alex Lowe's in fourth, Eugene Larity fifth, Jordi Torres sixth, Chas Davies only seventh, ahead of Chavi Forres, uh, who's up in eighth, so signs that he's back somewhere near his best form again, with Lorenzo Savadori ninth and Michael Vandermark in tenth. Um, but of course, we'll see how the weekend progresses uh, from there. Race one, Saturday night. Race two, Sunday night. Um, of course, for us in the UK, um, brilliant time for the races. They're both at 10 p.m. UK time, um, Saturday lovely. night and Sunday night. So lovely stuff. World Superbikes at Laguna Seca this weekend. Uh, and we'll review it all next week on Bike Live. Um, before we go, then, let's tell you about the places you can find us. Starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport motorsport underscore uh, 101 on YouTube. It's youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. Our website is motorsport101.com where you can find written pieces um, from plenty of the team on there, including Dre's piece on uh, Ducati's current predicament in MotoGP. Um, And if you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 is the place to go. $5 backing earns you the podcast before everyone else. Uh, $10 backing earns you access to our Discord server where you can listen in live. Although, as Dre has mentioned earlier on, if you back us at any level whatsoever, you get early access to next week's Motorsport 101 episode 147, which, Dre, um, will be reviewing both uh, the latest round of the IndyCar Championship, which takes place this weekend, um, and um, IndyCar's in Wisconsin, by the way, um, and the Formula 1, which is back at Paul Ricard. Um, and at this very early stage, and we're speaking to you after Friday, and uh, Ferrari always seem to sandbag on a Friday. But uh, yeah, you might be um, it might be coming up forty four this weekend if uh, Friday is anything to go by. Yeah, it's, it's looking that way. Mercs have got the in. It's a power circuit, a lot of long straights of Paul Ricard, and uh, yeah, the way it's going at the moment, it's looking a lot like it could be a Mercedes uh, beat them down for the weekend. So we'll have to wait and see how that goes. Red Bull do look pretty quick out there as well, to be fair. Which, given again, it's a power circuit. It actually makes the Red Bull look even more impressive. Hopefully, um, when it comes to qualifying itself, it tells a different story. Um, but yes, um, you know, pretty dramatic uh, Paul Ricard weekend so far. It's also a shame to hear so many fans missed out on being there for practice day because they only put one lane of traffic going into the track for a rate Grand Prix expecting 80,000 people. Where, where to go, guys? Re- re- really clever. But um, we'll, we'll like have all the... It isn't designed for racing. Really? It's almost like it's a test circuit or something. Yeah. Um, funny that. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll try and pick together um, what happens at Paul Ricard this weekend and we'll talk about the French Grand Prix. I mean, yeah, it's great to have a French Grand Prix again, but they, they couldn't have just gone back to Magni no, um, but anyway, as, uh, as Ryan right. King terms it on the on this weekend, the granddaddy of them all, and as uh, as we've mentioned, uh, Road America IndyCar this weekend Indeed. as well. Um, Indeed. So we have that to all look forward to on episode one four seven um, of Motorsport One Hundred and One. 
um, next week. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we don't know yet whether it's going to be a double, but we shall see. Uh, potentially 147 and 148, depending on how much happens um, mm-hmm. in these two uh, series that we're mentioning this weekend, uh, which means that we could either be two weeks or three weeks away for episode 150, um, which is uh, which is a milestone to uh, to be noted coming up uh, sometime in July. Um, but that brings us to the end um, of this week's bike line. Next week, episode 66. Um, if the motorcycle racing gods have any kind of um, knowledge of the numbers of our shows, Tom Sykes will clean up. Probably won't happen now. Um, but whatever happens, I didn't go in a second this weekend. We'll review it all on Bike Live next week for episode 66. For so myself and Dre, until then, it's bye bye. <laughs>